Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By having any research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Carroll is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Hello, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me this week on Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. Aren't we going through a really interesting and crazy time in our game, particularly at the tour level, with all the uncertainty with what's going on between the PIF, PGA Tour, the DP World Tour, Keith Pelly walking away from his CEO job there? Are these three entities going to merge? Will Liv walk away from it? Or will the strategic sports group step in to fund the purses? that the tour needs to be able to compete with Liv if they do walk away? Will more players like, say, Rory McIlroy join John Rahm and go over to Liv? Of course, we're all dealing with the thought that the golf ball is going to get rolled back and the heartburn that we're having over that. I learned last week that the new handicap system changes are going to allow par three courses to be a part of it as long as the course measures over 750 yards. So the answer to the age-old question If I make a hole-in-one on a par-3 course, does it count? Well, now the answer is a resounding yes. Drinks are going to be on you. We're going to get into these topics and a lot more with Tom Patry when he joins me in the leadoff position. Following Tom tonight is going to be one of his former students, Megan Francella. Megan had a lot of success as a junior player and in college and as a professional for that matter. She won a couple of state junior championships. She won a couple of conference titles while she was playing in college and in only her second start on the LPGA Tour. She defeated Annika Sorensam in a playoff. We'll hear that story and all the others as well. A lot of exciting things to get into with Megan. She's going to join me about 25 minutes from now. Following her, I'm going to be joined by Steve Scott, another player who had a tremendous junior and college career and an amateur career for that matter. Steve won three straight South Florida Junior Championships and back-to-back high school state titles. He was an All-American at the University of Florida. And he would have defeated Tiger Woods in the 1996 U.S. Amateur Finals if he wasn't such a great sportsman. We're going to hear that story. Tiger would have lost 3-2 and to Steve if he didn't say one thing to him. But he did. Did the right thing. Tiger goes on to win on the 38th hole of their match. So we'll hear that story and a whole lot more from Steve when he joins me a little bit later on in the hour. And then we're going to round things out with a visit from Brendan Walsh. Brendan is the head golf pro at the Country Club in Brookline, Massachusetts, one of the most storied courses in our country. He was the host there for the 1999 Ryder Cup, the 2013 U.S. Amateur, and the 2022 U.S. Open. We'll hear what it's like being a part of those events. Plus, he is the 12th of 15 children. To the father who is a Philadelphia golf legend and a mother who must be a saint. We'll hear those stories and a whole lot more when Brendan joins me about an hour from now. So a lot of great stuff in store for you this week here on Next on the T, folks. And as always, I can't thank you enough for tuning in and taking the journey with me this week. 
Before we get started, and like I've been saying to you guys for the last several months, our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, and I have been working with a company called Kickpoint, and they have done some magical things with our logos and created some polo shirts with some wonderful designs where they take our logos and turn them into designs on a polo shirt. They're absolutely outstanding. Kickpoint Golf is a private label custom golf apparel company making bespoke polo shirts, quarter zips, and hoodies for those selected clubs looking to take their branded game to a whole new level. If you want to check out their apparel, and again, it's going to knock your socks off, send an email to info at kickpointgolf.com. They'll get right back to you. There's no middleman. They're going to go right to the guys that do this work. You're going to check it out, and you are really going to love what they do. I'm going to start showing the uh, polo shirts that they designed for me on my Instagram, at CT Mascaro. Check them out there so you can get a sample of what they look like. These guys know where it's at. Now let's talk about golf getaways and buddies trip locations. When you're thinking about that, think about our friends over at the McLemore, which is a wonderful resort located just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee, high atop Lookout Mountain. It is a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the U.S. by Golf Digest. The 18th hole is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Keep, is under construction and will open summer of 2024. The Keep is a Bill Bergen, Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled up with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton, will open spring of 2024. Both have incredible views into historic McLemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. You got to see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at McLemore. Go online to McLemore.com to book your stay and play package. Now let's talk about the new P790 irons from TaylorMade. From the very beginning, P790 irons have been rooted in clean aesthetics and thoughtful design. However, their true beauty is found beneath the surface. With AI-optimized weighting and speed foam air on the inside, every iron is uniquely designed to perform exactly how you need it to. As striking as they are on the outside, their true beauty lies within. Learn more about the new P790 irons from TaylorMade by checking out their website at taylormadegolf.com. All right, now back with me is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. As you know, TP is the director of player development at Twin Eagles Club down in Naples, Florida. He is also a 13-time Golf Magazine Top 100 teacher, a four-time PGA Teacher of the Year, three-time Golf Digest Best in the State, including in their current December 2023, January 2024 edition. And I'm always tickled pink in various other colors when he is going to be back and part of the show. Hey, TP, how are you, my friend? Yeah, boy. <laughs> you got to do something, Tom, because what color, what I'm colors, not, what colors, what colors are you I'm black and blue after that Steelers <laughs> game. Yes, that's, that's what color I am. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, with my guys out, I was pulling for you. And I got to tell you, the first half, they looked like they, they had some life. And then they just kind of fizzled out on us, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Does Mike Tomlin come back? I hope not. <laughs> I saw him storm out of out of his uh, post game presser, and and like I'm I'm not you know I'm not all down on Tomlin when I say I hope not. I just don't, I just think it's time for him to move on. I mean we've 
we haven't won a you know playoff game in years. We have five times in a row now where we're out, and the thirty-one points was the fewest points we've given up, and and those outs lately. So it's just I just think it's time. I think they need another voice. They need a whole new coaching staff. We got to go another direction. We need a young guy. I mean, again, Tom, as you know, Tom Tomlin is only our third head coach since nineteen sixty-nine. It's not like we cycle through these guys. No, They're right. around a long time. So you know who's coming back? Who's that? Bill Cower. Oh, I, I you know from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> oh, if that were only true. But anyway, enough for that craziness. Let's talk some golf. Okay. So it's been two weeks since you were last here, and we still don't have a deal between the PIF and the PGA Tour. What we do have is Keith Pelly resigning from the DP World Tour to take a job with Maple Leaf Sports back in his home country of Canada. We have Martin Slumber, CEO of the RNA, also saying this is going to be his last Open Championship this year. After that, he's resigning. Are you surprised that instead of resolution and the game at the tour level coming back together, all we're getting are more reasons to question what's going on here? You know, Chris, I, I, you know, we've had so many theories, you and I, over the last, probably call it 18 months, I, I can't even make a good guess now. I mean, it, this, it gets crazier every week and and doesn't get crazy in the right direction, gets crazy in the wrong direction. I mean, the 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 flux and the uncertainty and the crazy things that are happening and these guys resigning and moving on. I mean, basically like, you know, rats jumping off a ship, you know, sinking ship. I mean, it, it's got to be a sign that nothing good is going on when when – People in those positions just kind of throw their hands up in the air and say, "You know what? Uh, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I just I've had enough of this nonsense, and I don't see this going anywhere good. And I'm going to get out while the getting is good. I don't think there's a really. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a very positive outlook about what's going to happen here at all. Yeah, that, that, and I think that's exactly right, Tom, because it just feels like the gray cloud hanging over the tour is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, Pelly yeah. says he's going to stick around until April to help the the PIF PGA Tour and the <laughs> DP World Tour, you know, help that come together. I don't know how much weight his opinion, ca- you know, carries anymore. I mean, plus, if I'm a DP World Tour player, I don't even know that I want him in that room after he agreed that the top 10 world, DP World Tour players get an exemption to go play over on the PGA Tour every year. Sounds like all he did was turn that tour into a minor league feeding tour for the PGA tour, like another corn fairy tour. And if I'm a sponsor, Tom, over on the DP world, tour, I got to be asking myself, what am I paying for? I'm not even getting Europe's best players anymore. It's, think, it's one thing with Rory and all those guys leaving, but now the, the top 10 every year are going to leave too. Yeah. Chris, I, I can't disagree with that. I mean, I don't, if I'm a sponsor on any major tour right now, you know, I'm asking a lot of questions about, you know, are my dollars being spent wisely? And do I want to hang out on this thing or am I going to get steamrolled by whatever the new powers to be are and say, I'm, I'm not, I'm not feeling very good about what's going on here and nobody's giving me any answers. So why am I hanging out here? Yeah. We lost another sponsor on the PGA tour just a couple of weeks ago. Somebody else said they're out. This is going to be the last year that Wells Fargo was the sponsor there at Quail Hollow, the event uh, in mid May. They walked away because they said, you know what? The money's just getting to be too much. 
the PGA Tour asking those guys to foot the bill to go from a an eight million dollar purse to a twenty million dollar purse. I don't. None of the business sense of what is happening seems like it's you know, being made by guys that have any sense on the PGA Tour side because they're asking for more and more money. And if they haven't signed this deal with the PIF, and I, look, I know a bunch of major league sports owners are coming together. I think they call it the strategic sports group, whether it's Fenway Sports and the guy that owns the Mets and the guy that owns the Cubs and, you know, this guy and that guy coming together that could inject some billions of dollars into the PGA Tour. But, I mean, what what are we going to have? And I think you and I talked about this at one point. I can't recall if it was on the air or off. But we're going to have the Fenway Sports Classic and the and the Chicago Cubs Open and the New York Mets Invitational. I mean, it, it, I don't, I'm, I'm shaking my head, Tom. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you, Chris. I'm, I'm one of the few times you and I have agreed on anything. But I mean, I don't, I don't know where this is going. I mean, I, I, I can't even make a good guess anymore. Um, and, and you know, on the side we've talked about on and off here in the past. And while all this is going on, the players seem like, by things they're saying, are getting greedier and greedier and greedier, and more demanding, and and creating more uncertainty and more unrest. I mean. I don't see I don't see a silver lining in the cloud anywhere. You've got an interesting conspiracy theory about what's going on involving Rory McIlroy. Tell us what you think might be up well, with Rory. I just I just think that I smell a rat. You know, I mean, Rory's done a 180 degree about face in the last what four or five weeks about maybe I maybe I spoke out of turn, maybe I said the wrong things, maybe I didn't think this through, um, and I'm gonna move I'm gonna move back across the pond and. It, it sounds like I mean, to me another rat jumping off the ship, and my my conspiracy theory, and it's only conspiracy theory. It's kind of almost like you know tongue in cheek. Rory goes for a billion dollars to live. Somebody else of note or two follow him, and now there's some real damage done. I mean, you know, Rom was damaging enough, but if Rory and two other players to be named that are significant go, um, you know, Liv basically says to the PGA Tour. You know what? You better shit or get off the pot because guess what? We're gonna keep on you know keep on you know putting bullets in the side of your of your ship and your ship is sinking. So either we have a big stake in this and we make some calls and you kind of bow to us or you know, party's over. And I and I don't see if that anything like that happens, Jay Monahan surviving any longer. I mean he's already he, let's face it, he's already taken so many shots across the bow, it's not even funny. Um, you know, the sentiment for him has got to be really, really tainted right now. And what if they turned around and got control and they made Eldrick Tiger Woods the new commissioner of the PGA Tour? Ooh. Yeah. Now so, you're talking. Well, I mean, a lot of things, you know, but, 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 like I said, they had control at that point. Um, yeah. and, and, and paid the new commissioner of the tour some crazy amount of money. I mean, I, I just think it's a sinking ship. I really do. So let's take that a step further. Because what it could feel like to me is live sort of become in the DP World Tour sort of come together. And it's an international, you know, outside of the U.S., anything outside of the U.S., an international tour. I mean, Rory is over there playing in the Dubai Invitational this past weekend. You know, that's a kind of a series that happens over in that part of the world, the Meredith Open, the uh, the Dubai Invitational, the Dubai Desert Classic, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's a five or a seven 
tournament series with a bunch of money on the line and, and those guys get to go over there and play in that. And if you're Rory, you know what? I, I'm I'm gonna be playing in the majors. It's the same argument we have for John Rahm. Right. Right. You know, John Rahm's gonna be playing in the Masters for the rest of his life. He's yeah. you know, he's an uh, a US Open champion. He's gonna be playing that for, for several more years. Ten years I think is the exemption. So he's got many more years of that. I mean he's still a young guy. I mean he's gonna be playing in these things. Rory's gonna be playing in these things. Again, Rory was the guy who was the scapegoat, quote unquote, right? They they marched him out there, they made him the face of the PGA tour. And then they go behind his back and, and they make him look like an idiot when they do this meeting back in June. And who knows how this thing eventually works out. But if you're Rory, you're probably a little ticked off. Yeah, like, probably a lot ticked off, right? Yeah, how dare you march me out here? Make me say these things. You, you know, again, we, we learned that Monahan had a whole speech that he wanted Tiger to read to tell how great Jay Monahan is. And then they march Rory out there. You might be just a little bit frosted. Now he quits the policy board. Yeah, I'm done with that. I'm out. You know, to your earlier point, you know, hey, I think I'm going to move back across the pond. I, w- I want my daughter to be raised there, go to school there. I mean, at some point, you got to look at it and say, hey, you know what? Jay Monahan, you have made as big a blunder as you possibly could have out of all of this. And now what you've done is you've lost Rom, and maybe you've disenfranchised Rory McElroy along the way, too. I think Rory's right on the fence right now, Pierce. I mean, you're playing in this five or seven tournament series in 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 the Middle East, and and you're playing for really, if you look at it, not a lot of money. I mean, what did they, what did the winner make this week? It was ridiculously low amount of money. So what was it three hundred fifty or three hundred eighty thousand dollars or yeah, something? Yeah, exactly. Right. And and who, who when did these guys play for a three hundred eighty thousand dollars first place prize nowadays? It's usually two million, right? right. So. That kind of sends up a red flag for me. So I got to believe in these, they're all invitational events, they're all limited fields that maybe our friends overseas are paying them, you know, a hefty, all these guys, a hefty appearance fee to get them over there and play. Um, this week, Brian Harmon's going over, Cam Young's going over. Um, you know, I mean, I smell a rat, man. I just smell yeah. a rat. Yes. Agreed. Yeah, something doesn't feel right. Now, let's switch gears a little bit. And a couple of weeks ago, you posted a tribute to some influential people in your golf journey that have uh, since passed away. You posted it out there on, on your Instagram page. Talk about some of the people that really made an impact on you, that had uh, influence on you, and that got your golf journey going. Well, some gone, some some thankfully still not gone. Um one of them not gone, who certainly gave me my biggest opportunity ever, was John Kennedy, who was the director of golf at Westchester, when he basically handed me the director of instruction position at Westchester in, in 1990 at a, one of the really iconic clubs in the country and really handed it to a person at you know 29 years old and 30 years old that was really pretty green, quite frankly, and, and handed me a situation that was kind of a mess at the time and said, you know what, paint your canvas, do what you can do with this. And it was an unbelievable opportunity, and luckily I didn't, I didn't fall off my skis. I, I made it happen, and we we did you know a wonderful job over the next eleven years. So that certainly is a huge influence right there, and a guy who gave me an unbelievable opportunity when you know maybe I wasn't really qualified at that time for that opportunity, but he had some faith in me, and I I'm forever grateful for that. And I speak to John still on a regular basis, and and take his advice on a regular basis. 
Um, another one still alive, two still alive, is certainly Bob Ford, who you know very well, um, and uh, Jack Druga, of, of, uh, just recently retired as director of golf at Shinnecock Hills. Both of those guys have been huge guys in my corner um, and, and are still in my corner and, and very influential in, what, in, in the decisions I make day to day. And then Bill Strasbaugh, who was the 1999 National Teacher of the Year, who was my dad, basically passed away in 99 who uh, opened so many doors for me and held my hand through uh, so many um, great happenings in my life and allowed me not to fall on my face on several occasions when I was making the wrong turn. Um, and I miss Bill every day. He was an incredible teacher. And uh, um, we have a national award named after him. Um, Jim Flick, who's gone, uh, was one of Bill's dear friends. And Bill, st Bill steered me towards Jim for some help and some mentoring and uh, one of the great teaching minds of all time. Um, and certainly guys that are still with us, you know, whether it's Rick Smith or Jimmy McLean or David Ledbetter, Carl Warren, uh, Mike Hebron, um, you know, so many guys who, who opened their door to me and, and allowed me to, you know, be with them and ask questions and pick their brains. And, and uh, I just recently spent some time with Jimmy McLean over, over at uh, the Biltmore in Miami and still, still a guy that I, have tremendous respect for. So I, I've been, I mean, I, cause I've been so lucky with, I'm, I'm missing a lot of people and I shouldn't be. And I, I apologize for anybody I did miss, but so many people have, uh, have helped me, um, more than I can ever repay them for. Um, as a kid, a guy named Mike Wands, who's a PGA member, who's, uh, was actually now is retired, was about an hour from here as a kid held my hand and gave me a great opportunity to play junior golf and, gave me a place to practice and play. So um, my college coach, Charlie Matlock at Florida Southern, who's gone. Who's gone. Um, I, you know, anybody who thinks they can do this by themselves uh, and can do this without help um, and can do this without somebody mentoring them and making really tough calls sometimes. And I have some people that I mentor that um, I can think of one offhand right now who's really not very happy with me right now because I made some tough calls and said some things that they didn't particularly like, but were very frank with them. Um, but that's what mentors do. They make tough calls. And, and, they always, and those guys, guys I named made plenty of tough calls and, and put it in my grill on multiple occasions. And at the time I was, you know, young and, and not very freaking, not that I'm any smarter right now, because I'm not particularly smart right now, but, you know, you know, wasn't happy with things they said to me. But looking back, they always had my best interest at heart and, and, and were worried about, me making a wrong turn and luckily didn't make me let me do that on a lot of occasions. But, you know, I'm, I'm so lucky in that respect, Chris. And that's what, that's what, you know, professionals do with fellow professionals. They, they, that's why this fraternity is really so strong. Um, the inner workings of this fraternity will always be strong because we have people that care about other people. Well, let's take that a half step further. Speaking of it as a fraternity, one of the things that I've been blessed to learn over the last several years is the golf community is actually a pretty tight one. Oh, yeah. Positively and negatively, but it's a yeah. pretty tight one. Talk about that as you as you grew through your instruction. To your point earlier, you, you get your start. All of a sudden, you, you build a little bit. You get some more people around you. They start to help you. It's sort of like a building block of people learning about who you are and what you're about and helping along the way. Well, the no golf doubt. community is very helpful. I have. I am so proud of um, five or six or seven kids that worked for me on the range at Westchester 
that now hold some of the really, really fine jobs in the country. And I'm sure if you, uh, you pour truth serum down their throats, they would tell you that I was very difficult to work for and I was really hard on them at the time. But I think if they told the truth now, and, and then these guys and I stay in contact, but they, they tell you that, you know, now they realize why I was hard on them. Now they realize why I did some of the things I did, made some of the calls I made. Um, they've turned out all pretty good and, and pretty good spots and do great jobs in some of the places they're at. Um, and again, people did that to me, you know, uh, and, and it, it is a close community, Chris, it's very close and there are, it's competitive. Um, you know, there's a lot of jobs in the country in the golf business, but there's not a lot of great jobs in the country. And that's the difference. There's, you know, there's 29,000 PJ members There's I think 90, I'm going to get this wrong, but about 9,900 facilities. And, you know, that's a lot of guys that will never be a head professional or a director of instruction um, because it's that competitive to get those really good jobs. Out of that 9,900, if, if that's the right number, you know, I, I'm going to tell you, as far as great jobs, I mean, truly great jobs, under 1,000 in the whole country, you know, that are really, truly great jobs. And I've been blessed to have a few of those. Westchester was certainly one of them. Friars Head and the, and the opportunity Kenny Bax gave me at Friars Head was one of them. And the place I'm at right now and, and the job that Carl Brovitz gave me as director of player development at Twin Eagles. Um, I'm really lucky to be at some really, have been at some really fine places and people have given me opportunities that don't come along every day. Speaking of lucky, one of your junior students who was lucky to have you as a coach and a mentor just won a big tournament. Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, one of my kids just won his first event on on um, the Hurricane Junior Tour up in up in Orlando at, at the, one of the Disney courses. Um, a kid came to me a couple of years ago, uh, three I think now. He was pretty raw. I mean, very raw. Rocco Media actually sent this kid to me, uh, referred him to me, um, and, and the first time the kid was missing, he was he, he was clear. He was very athletic. He was very bright. He was very driven, but he was a Basically, and he probably would admit this, but he basically was a beginner, couldn't keep it on the range. Um, and this kid is absolutely, you know, and all credit goes to him. He has worked his ass off the last three years. And he's gone from a slasher. I mean, he was a really, it was a slasher to a really fine ball striker and a, and a really nice player. And, and just and just actually landed a college scholarship to Eckerd, a Division II school in up in St. Pete. And told you three. If I told you three years ago, and you looked at him three years ago, I said this kid's going to play college golf. You would have told me I was batshit crazy. Um, but he's really worked hard. I'm really proud of him. Um, and he's about to embark on a, on a college career starting next year. And, and he's, I'm really happy for the kid. And he's, you know, his first real victory on, a, on other than any kind of a local little tour, uh, a little bit bigger tour. He stepped out into a, you know, up, up to the next level. And I always try to do that with my kids. I don't let them go. To the next level they've had some success locally you know so i try to move them along you know at a rate that they learn how to win locally then regionally then nationally and then and then beyond um and this kid has taken a couple of steps already in a short period of time and really had some nice results tom i want to get a playing lesson from you tonight speaking of keeping it on the range as i see myself sometimes and and pl people that i play with Slicing the ball off, way into the woods, into the water, on the range, <laughs> into the nets. 
<laughs> that sort of thing. And 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 some of the time I, I take a look and I see that the players got the ball on the, from from a tee shot perspective, and when they got their driver, the ball way inside the left heel if you're a right-handed player. Talk about ball position when we're trying to hit a drive and hit it straight and keep it in the fairway. If you as you move that ball back in your stance, what happens? Well, you're playing on an inclined plane, Chris. You know, and you uh, uh, and the inclined plane is you know what's what's called it's really the lip. What's called a circle for argument's sake. And if you can picture moving the club back on that circle, you know the face is facing more to the right. And if you move it way forward on the circle, too far forward, it's facing to the left. So where that club crashes or collides with the ball uh, is relative to you know starting direction. Um, and it's funny you say that because I had a guy in my last lesson today tonight at uh, four o'clock, this afternoon four o'clock who came to me and was complaining about, you know, he, he couldn't keep the ball in the golf course, was going to the right. And he thought it was a, a, a you know, a huge swing issue. And we, we put him on some video and we showed him a couple of things. First thing was the ball was radically far back with his driver. He, he couldn't believe how far back it was. And if I didn't have video, I never could have convinced him, you know, face on video of it. And then we looked at his left-hand grip and it was way up in the palm of his hand in a really weak position. We strengthened his grip. We moved the ball a little bit forward. We hit some shots. And this guy has about a 16 handicap, and he hit about two or three really, really, really good-looking, high-penetrating draws. And he looked at me and he said, I've never hit that shot in my life. I didn't change anything in his golf swing. I changed his ball position and where he held the club in his left hand, and we called it a day. Um, wow. And he's pretty happy. So that, that's, you know, it doesn't have to be complicated to be good. Tom, just a couple more before I let you go. and. I've got one of your former junior players, a friend of yours coming up next, Megan Francella. Talk about Ooh. Megan. Wow. I mean, I don't even want to start. Um, one of the real um, bright spots in my career. Um, came to me as a little girl uh, at Westchester. Um, I remember the very first session, you, you know, 30 seconds in, I said, this kid's an athlete. And she really is a good athlete and a very good athlete. And she's proven that um, was a really nice little basketball player. and. Um, very athletic, and uh, we spent a lot of time together. Um, she won locally. She won on a state level, a state junior championship, state amateur championship. She went on to win uh, a number of college events, including the ACC championships, the NCAA East Regional. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the tournament. Maybe she can tell you when she comes on, Chris, but she beat Paula Kramer in a really big amateur event in South Florida here one winter. Um, turned pro in her rookie year on tour. I think it was her fourth event in Mexico City. She beat Annika Sorenstam in a playoff, um, which was, you know, I don't know who, who's more excited about that, her parents, her or me. Um, but we're all awful excited. She's, she played some wonderful golf. She's turned herself into a, a wonderful instructor, a wonderful coach uh, up at Philly Cricket. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I'm proud of the work she's done. She's done a hell of a job, and she's uh, she's not getting the recognition she deserves right now as a teacher. I think some of these lists that she hasn't been on have made a huge mistake overlooking her. Uh, I think she's one of the really bright young minds uh, in teaching, and I think she's only getting better. And you're and you're blessed to have her on, Chris. She's gonna she's gonna be on more than once in the show. I can guarantee you that. You're gonna want her on more than once, but she's really good at what she does. 
I'm looking forward to the conversation. I promise you that. CP, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they find you and get a lesson from you, even if they're not down in Naples, Florida? You know, Chris, who cares if they can find me? The most important thing they find is next to the T on Tuesday nights, but you do a hell of a job. I'm so blessed to be on with you. I appreciate you having me on. This is this is show number 17,432. Uh, and I look forward to every other Tuesday night being on with you. Um, I'm down here in Naples at Twin Eagles, and, and I'm on every, it seems like every social media platform on the planet. So, if they're looking for me, they can find me. But more importantly, they find you on Tuesday nights. Because if they find you on Tuesday nights, they're going to hear great things from talented people, including you. Wow, I appreciate that very much. I'm looking forward to seeing you next week live and in person yeah, down at the PGA little, Merchandise we're little, Show. We're having a little dinner at Charlie's Steakhouse, you and I, are we? Yeah, yes, we are. Yes, uh, we are. I'm going to make sure you get the bill, too. That's, gonna be <laughs> That's the kind of guy you are. I appreciate <laughs> you, TB. Love you, my friend. I'll, I'll catch up with you next week. Tell Megan I said hi, pal. I will do it. Thanks, buddy. You bet. That is the great Tom Patry, folks. They don't come better than that guy right there. Follow him on Instagram at Tom Patry Golf, online at TomPatry.com, uh, com, and go out onto YouTube and subscribe to that YouTube channel. Get those free video lessons that Tom posts. He is just one of the best people on the planet. And then he's a, uh, he's a wonderful instructor as well, as we all know. Can't wait to see him in person and give him the bill next week for having him on the show 91 times after tonight. So uh, I think that uh, that uh, deserves him picking up the check, don't you? I think it does. Coming up next is a young lady who has been named by Golf Magazine as one of the top 100 instructors to watch for 2024 and 2025, and that is Megan Francella. Before I get to Megan... I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year. And I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX Full Face Wedges from Cleveland Golf. Another new product that has stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus black grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability, with their fingerprint technology, creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Megan Francella. Let me give some background on Megan. She is from Port Chester, New York. She is a two-time New York State Junior Champion. She played her college golf first at the University of Memphis, where she was named the 2001 Conference USA Freshman of the Year after winning the individual Conference USA Championship that season. In 2002, she won the Dixie Amateur Championship. 
She transferred to the University of North Carolina for her junior year, and in 2003, she won the ACC championship and was named first-team All-American in 2004. That year, she was also the NCAA East Region champion. After college, she joined the Futures Tour, where she won the Lakeland Duramed Futures Classic and had six other top 10 finishes to earn her exempt status on the LPGA Tour for 2007. Got her first win on the LPGA Tour and just her second start at the MasterCard Classic. There, she defeated Annika Sornstam and a four-hole playoff to win it. She also won the 2010 Brazil Cup. She had seven top 10 finishes on the LPGA Tour, including three in majors. More recently, she won the New Jersey State Women's Open Championship. She did that last year. And Golf Magazine has named her one of the top 100 teachers to watch for 2024 and 2025. She's now teaching at the Philadelphia Cricket Club, and it's great to have her with me here on Next on the T. Hey, Megan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Chris. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Minus the snow, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt. (laughs) So, Megan, I want to start our time tonight by going all the way back to the beginning for you, because I read you started playing the game at the age of four. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah, we... uh... I used to go up to Portchester High School and um, hit balls on the field up there. I know we probably weren't allowed to do that, but um, we used to go up there and hit some balls up there and then um, played. uh, There was a nine hole golf course, uh, Pound Ridge Golf Club. Um, It was a public semi-private course. And my parents used to take me up there to play and, um, you know, just kind of get on the golf course. But, you know, like Tom had, I just heard the end of that, but Tom had said uh, I played basketball and that was kind of my love. So I, I only played golf in the summer. Um, so I think that's why I still love it as much as I do. So, yeah. So first of all, let me pass along his hello to you. Mm-hmm. And then let's, let's talk about some of that junior time because there's so many great courses and a ton of junior talent up in the, in the Met section in the New York yeah. area. You win two state junior championships. You did it in back to back years in 98, 99. Talk about what it was like winning huge junior events and back-to-back years at that level in that area. Yeah. I mean, we had such a great group of, of juniors in, in the New York area. And, um, you know, that was one of the big highlights of my life was winning the state junior and, you know, being able to say I'm a New York state junior champion and, and to do it two times in a row was incredible. And, you know, I think that just kind of got me the jump start that I needed and, um, you know, learning how to win and, and at a young age, um, you know, learning how to come down the stretch under pressure. And it just prepared me, um, to move forward and, and do that at every level I played at. So, um, you know, the New York state golf association, they were always so kind and, and they, they ran a great event and I was just proud to, to be a, you know, something they can never take away from me. And, you know, New York state junior champ, and I'm so proud to, to have won that. So you got to tell me, how does a girl from New York end up starting her college golf career at the University of Memphis? Well, you know, I um, I wanted to go somewhere where I could play. That was that was kind of the number one thing. Um, you know, I, I wanted to play. I didn't want to go to a college and sit. I wanted to get experience. I wanted to play. Um, you know, I really struggled in school. Um, I had, you know, learning disabilities. So school didn't come easy to me. So I wanted to go somewhere academically where I could I could handle the work and, you know, it was going to be a big change going to college and, you know, starting my freshman year, handling workouts and practice and travel. 
uh, and missing classes. So I wanted to make sure I was able to to do both. And Memphis was the right fit for me. I really loved the coach there. Um, unfortunately, she left. Um, so I would have gone through four coaches in four years had I stayed at University of Memphis. So um, that's what that's what kind of put me into North Carolina. And that was my dream school anyway. Um, so I was able to, you know, make the transition there, um, and finish my career there at college. Speaking of the success that you had at Memphis, again, like I said, in your intro, you win the conference USA team title and the individual title, the team team won by two strokes over South Florida. You win the individual title by a stroke over Kelly Martin and two over your teammate at the time, Marianne Rude. What was it like coming down the stretch for you with both the team title and the individual title on the line? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the goals for the year we had as a team was to win. And, um, you know, we had a great team. We had great team chemistry. And, um, you know, we were talented. We might not have been the best in the country, but we were definitely one of the best in the conference. And we we proved that. And individually, um, I had won earlier that year, got my first college win. At, um, it was actually at Pinehurst number eight. And I always wanted the putter boy, um, trophy when I was a junior playing in the North South junior and the North South amateur. And I never got that junior one, but I ended up getting one, um, in college for my first win. And then, you know, once I got that win under my belt, I knew I could do it. And one of the goals for the year was to win the conference as an individual too. And I was playing just great golf at the time and, and was very fortunate to come out on top both individually and as a team that week. In 2003, you win again. This time it's in the ACC. You win the ACC title after you transferred over to North Mm -hmm. Carolina. Talk about what it was like adding a second conference title to your resume. Yeah, that was, um, you know, I had never broken 70. And um, I did it three times that week. You know, I I was working with a sports psychologist and she told me, she's like, it's going to come. Don't worry. It's going to come. And when you do it, it's just going to happen every single time. And I, I and that's what happened. It happened that week. So um, I just played really well. I remember, you know, the goal was to always beat Duke. I mean, Duke had a powerhouse when I was in college and they were always winning the conference championship. And and, you know, on they were they were a strong team. Some of them went on to play the LPGA. Some of them are still very good friends of mine. Um, so, you know, to beat them in the in a team championship was a little bit difficult, but I was really happy to get that win as an individual and and beat all those Dukies. <laughs> yeah, to your point, you beat Elizabeth and Angelo of Duke. She came in second to you. Yeah. I was wondering, did, did that make it a little extra sweet when you uh, I love, a Duke I love in Liz. second? I love Liz, but yeah, okay, it was a little. It was nice to win, and I'm actually sitting here. I have my ACC championship ring on my on my desk, and I'm looking at it right now, and it's something that you know I I'm so proud to have, and. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to to go to UNC and graduate from a great university. Switching gears a little bit to the LPGA Tour, you go out and you get your first win there and just your second start, and you did it in style by beating world number one and two-time defending champion Annika Sornstam in a four-hole playoff at the MasterCard Classic. Talk about battling it out with her, <laughs> you know, the person who arguably is the greatest female player of all time. Yeah, it was... um it was wild. I'd, I had never been out of the country before. It was my first time using a passport. Um, you know, I, I played really well. We had a couple rain delays. I had to sit on the lead. Um, and then, you know, I finished and I, I had a putt for birdie, which I didn't realize was to win on the, the final hole. And, um, you know, 
it was um it was just an experience I'll never forget. I mean, I, I can't believe it. I still can't believe it happened. Um, you know, it was it was one of the best days of my life by far and um just really cool. I mean, it was um it was so special and you know, she's been she's been super kind to me. Um, you know, we've you know, she I do some videos for some of the, my uh my members for our t- our women's team matches and Annika sent a video last year for me and wishing the women luck and you know, I've stayed stayed in contact with her and she's been she's been great, but you know, to have that on my resume is, um, for my first win just made it a a lot more special. I mean, they're all special, but that one, um, to get my first win and to beat Annika in a playoff was just incredible. Yeah. So I got to ask you later that night after you've won, you've got the, the, the trophy and you've, you've done all the interviews and everybody finally goes home and, and you go back when I'm guessing to your hotel or wherever mm-hmm. it was yeah. and, and you get to, ha- and you get to be alone with your thoughts and, and look back on the day and look at the trophy sitting there on your, on, on the desk or whatever it was on and, and just kind of thinking what just happened. Yeah. It had to be That's incredible. A, it was, it was, I remember just, I didn't know what just happened. I mean, it was, you dream about it your whole life and then for it to happen was, um, you just can't put into words what it means. And, you know, I, uh, I mean, I just remember we had dinner at the hotel, my friend Meredith Duncan, who um, she stayed. I was like, you're going to miss your flight. She goes, I am not missing this playoff. So I remember she stayed. We went down to the um, to the hotel restaurant and had dinner and um, came back up and um, we were watching baseball on ESPN. I'll never forget it. And, um, you know, she's she was great to stay. And I just remember saying to her, I cannot believe what just happened. So I was just making sure that the Rolex that they gave me made it back from Mexico with me. I was so worried to leave it anywhere. I was like, don't forget this. Don't forget this. <laughs> so Later on, a time came when things weren't quite as rosy and you seemed to lose your joy for playing the game. Talk about that and how you came out of it. Yeah, I, um, you know, every everybody goes through a slump and, um, you know, it's it's golf. I mean you look at the best players in the world and and they have those stretches. I mean, you get the, you know, the tigers of the world that are, are, um, you know, the exception to that, but you know, there's, you know, you get, you only get so many good years and, and I was fortunate to have some good years and, you know, and, and every golfer goes third, I had a couple bad ones and, you know, it just wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. I, I was, I love golf more than anything. Um, if you talk to any of my friends, they'll tell you like Megan, Megan loves golf. She loves going to play. She loves, you know, the whole, the whole deal. I just, I just love golf. And when I stopped loving it, I knew it was time for me to do something else because I didn't want to, I didn't want to play for my paycheck anymore. I was playing for the wrong reasons. And, and when that happened, I, you know, I, I lost my card. I went back to Q school. Um, and then I, I was, you know, the next year I played, I played some events and then I finally, the next year I lost my card. I was like, after I went to Q school and didn't get it back, I said, that's it. I'm done. And I was so content with my decision. Um, and I knew it was the right one because when I left Daytona beach the year before I was crying. And when I left Daytona beach after Q school that year, I did, I was not crying driving down 95. So I knew it was the right call for me. You also caddied out on the LPGA tour for a while. I know you're on the bag for Paula Creamer for a tournament plus, Mm-hmm. Jay Marie Green, Pat Hurst, Min Lee. 
You really helped her and her career. Did that take the pressure off of you and, and let you kind of find that joy for the game again? You know, I think it, um, I think it really kind of just, I, I didn't want to step away. I didn't know what I was going to do yet. I wasn't sure where I wanted to go and what my next move was going to be. So it kept me in the game still. And it, it, I, I fell back in love with it. I mean, it was just, I was still inside the ropes. I was still, you know, in the heat of the moment. I was, um, you know, Min had a great, um, I caddied for her on the Symmetra Tour a couple events and helped her get her card out there, which was a lot of fun. She had a win on the Symmetra Tour at the time, which is now the Epson Tour, which was which was incredible. And probably one of the highlights of my career is being on her bag for that win. It just was pretty amazing to watch a young player um, kind of come through and, and handle the nerves. And, you know, I felt like I was able to, bro- to provide some experience to her that maybe she couldn't have gotten from from somebody else. So. I loved caddying. It was a lot of fun. I was still, I was still able to be out there with my friends and, you know, who I call my family. Um, that's who I spent most of my time with and most of my adult life with. So, um, you know, I was just lucky to, lucky to be able to still, still be out there and, and be around the game that I love. In 2021, you placed in the top eight at the LPGA professionals national championship. Talk about being back out there at that point and getting a top eight finish. Yeah, it was funny. I I woke up one morning and I said, I think I'm going to play again. And it was just a weird, a weird thing because I hadn't had the the urge to go play in a tournament. I hadn't played a tournament in nine years. Um, So I ended up playing in the ShopRite LPGA Classic that year. I got a sponsor's invite into that event and played, which was um, which was a lot of fun. It was my first tournament back in nine years. I was super nervous. And then, um, you know, I I had qualified for KPMG through the LPJ teachers. Um, I will tell you, it was very stressful um, coming down the stretch and and knowing one of those eight spots was was on the uh, you know was on the radar and it was pretty close. I think I got I think I got the the eighth spot actually or the seventh spot that week. Um, but you know, it felt good to be in the in in the ropes inside the ropes again and felt good to be competitive. And listen, I mean, I can. I can still hit the shots and, um, you know, I can still play. It's just a matter of, I don't have, I don't have the time to go compete all the time, but I try to keep my game sharp and I continue to play a lot of golf, but getting into, getting into KPMG and, and representing the teachers was, uh, was pretty cool. And I was just really fortunate to be able to play at congressional that year. Last year, you go out and win the inaugural New Jersey mm-hmm. women's open <laughs> Yeah. You make some big putts on eight and nine. You haul out for Eagle on 10. Mm-hmm. How did it feel to win that event? Uh, that was incredible. It was, uh, you know, I was, I was so bummed not to be playing a ball to straw in the KPMG. And it was the same week um, as KPMG. So all my friends were in town. I stayed at uh, a good friend's house with, and Morgan Pressel was, we stayed in the same house. So it was, you know, I had just a great week. Um, it felt amazing to, to hold putts and to have an opportunity to win. I have not been in that position. It would had been 13 years since I won. So um, I was very nervous coming down the stretch, but you know, I, I don't know. It just felt like that was my week. I, um, you know, I'd, I'd worked with Stacy Lewis um, that week before and that, that weekend prior she had come to me and I was helping her with her game before KPMG. And I, I was out at, 
ball to straw with her walking around during the practice round. And then I went and played my practice round for the state open. And, you know, it just wasn't, you know, I, it wasn't on the top of my radar, but it was, you know, I was focused, but it was, I was, I was working and teaching. I was excited to to be helping Stacy that week. And, and, um, but you know, it was fun. I, I, it was fun to be in the winner's circle again. I played really nicely. As Tom mentioned uh, at the end of our discussion, you're one of the top instructors in our game now, one of the top 100 to watch, according to Golf Magazine. And you're teaching at the oldest private club in our country, the Philadelphia Cricket Club. Talk about all of that. Yeah. Um, you know, Tom had always said, you know, after I got done playing, why don't you teach? And I said, Tom, I don't I don't have the patience. I don't think I can do it. And it's funny, like it it's become it's my favorite thing to do. I love teaching. I love helping people. I love watching students get better. Um, I am beyond fortunate to be at the cricket club. Um, we have a great membership. We have a great playing membership. We have a lot of members that compete in big amateur events, um, college players, um, you know, good male and, um, female amateurs and, you know, everybody's always working on their game. So they appreciate good golf. They appreciate tournament golf and, um, they want to get better and it's a great place to be. I mean, we have two great golf courses plus a nine hole golf course, St. Martin's who that was just ranked behind Pine Valley as best short course in the country. So, um, you know, it, it, Philly is, has been my home now for, I'm going on my third season at cricket and I'm just so fortunate to be part of the team. And, um, just really, I, I was really lucky to, to be able to be here and, and, and get the job at cricket. All right, so just a couple more before I let you go, Megan. I'm gonna switch gears on you because yeah. I read one of your hobbies is fantasy football. So I got to know how'd you do? <laughs> I was hoping you weren't gonna ask that. <laughs> um, so I'm in a league with um, some pretty well known um, golfers, and I would say I don't know what's harder: winning a golf tournament or winning the fantasy football league. Julie Inkster, <laughs> Pat Hurst, Beth Daniel, Meg Mallon, Kari Webb, Stacy Lewis. And I finished 13th this year out of 14 teams. I finished third, I finished third last year. And, um, I love fantasy football. We, you know, we don't all get to see each other a lot. Um, so it's really nice. We have, there's 13 of us and me. And, you know, it's the one way we, we keep in touch and it's something fun we do every year together. And the draft is always a lot of fun. And, you know, I just love football in general. I mean, the Giants are my team. And, um, so living in Philly sometimes is a little bit challenging when the Eagles are winning every <laughs> week, but don't, don't get me wrong. The people at work give me a really hard time about it. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, fantasy football is a lot of fun and, and I love to fish too. I just was fishing, uh, last week in Florida when I was down there, actually Tom got me into fishing. So is that um, right? yeah, yeah. We used to fish together a lot when I was in Naples. Um, he used to take me fishing and then I've just continued the hobby and, um, you know, Kari Webb and I went fishing last week. Um, we don't, we don't see each other a whole lot anymore cause she goes to Australia for a bit during the year. And then, um, you know, I'm in Philly. So when we have time to connect, we, we usually get on the boat and go fishing, which is a lot of fun. Megan, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and following you, whether it's on your website or it's on uh, social media? Yeah, um, social media. I'm definitely active on social media. Um, and then my website is meganfrancella.com and, um, you know, my information's on there. But, um, you know, 
obviously through you too. Hope to, I hope to be back on your show again in the future. It was, um, I'm so honored to be on it. And, um, I listen to your podcast all the time. So I was really appreciative to, to be asked and really, uh, humbled to be on your show tonight. Well, Megan, I can't thank you enough for that. And I hope I do get the privilege of having you back on the show again sometime. You're fantastic. Thank you, Chris. Megan, take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. That is the great Megan Francella, folks. And what a tremendous career she has had, both at the junior level, the college level, the professional level, and now as one of the top teachers to keep your eyes on, according to Golf Magazine, for 2024 and 2025. Uh, she's a tremendous talent. Tom Patry talked about it in the first segment, and you heard why that is exactly the case. You don't have that much success without being that talented. And then to transition from being a player to being one of the top young teachers in our game, fantastic. I hope uh, we very much get the privilege of having Megan. This is the first time, I hope, of many visits we get to have with her. Coming up next is one of the all-time great junior players, college golf players, amateur players, and is now a fantastic broadcast analyst, and that is Steve Scott. Before I get to Steve, I want to remind you about our friends over at Two Under. Two Under Men's Performance Briefs are the unofficial underwear of the PGA, Ryder Cup, and President's Cup teams, and are sold in over 3,000 golf pro shops and golf specialty retailers nationwide. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, they are David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Jason Kokrak, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXTONT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number two, U-N-D-R dot com. Two under, performance in your pants. Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. Okay, now making his next on the tee debut with me is Steve Scott. Let me give you a little background on Steve. He is from Coral Springs, Florida. During his high school career at Coral Springs High, he won the 1993 and 1995 Individual State Championship. He also won the 1992, 93, and 94 South Florida Junior Championship. Played his college golf at the University of Florida. His freshman year, he was named second team All-SEC and finished ninth that year in the NCAA Championship. As a sophomore, he led the Gators in scoring average. His junior year, he was named first team All-SEC and played on the 1997 U.S. Walker Cup team that dominated the Britain and Ireland teams, winning 18-6. to And Steve was the world's number one ranked amateur. That year, here in Atlanta, Steve won the Dogwood Invitational. His senior year, he was named SEC Player of the Year after winning three individual titles, and he helped the Gators win the SEC Championship. In all, he was a three-time first-team All-SEC and three-time All-American player. Steve repeated on the 1999 Walker Cup team. His round of 63 at the 99 Gator Invitational is tied for the best round in Florida history. He won the 1999 Western Amateur Stroke Play and Match Play Championships, and after college, 
Steve turned pro and won the 2001 Vancouver Open on the Canadian Tour and the 2002 Texas Classic. He's now one of the top golf professionals in our game, along with being a great analyst and commentator for ESPN, PGA Tour Live, Fox, and the Golf Channel. And Steve had an epic duel with Tiger Woods at the 1996 U.S. Amateur Championship, which he's written a wonderful book about titled, Hey Tiger, You Need to Move Your Mark Back, which we'll talk about in length here in just a few moments. But I couldn't be more honored I get to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Chris, uh, this is like a game of this is your life here. This is great. I love I, I love going back in time. Thank you for listing all of that. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Steve, you've done and achieved a ton over the course of your career. And that, and that intro didn't even get to all of it. But you go back and you started with a fantastic junior career. I mean, golf must have come naturally to you because you were so good at such a young age. Well, it was, yeah, it was one of those things that I just always loved. I always loved to be uh, around the game and the, the competition of the, the individualness, I guess, of the game of golf. I, I played some team sports when I was younger and, you know, I, I'm five foot 10 on a good day. And so, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, play an offensive line or, you know, I, I hated running like in soccer and uh, I, I don't know all those things that, you don't do in golf, but the golf ball doesn't know how old you are or how uh, and how tall you are. So it just uh, understands how much speed you can create. And so I, I was able to hit the ball far enough to compete and and have a great short game. And you know, I just loved the game and I loved the the ability to get out there and compete and and you know show the the hard work that you that you have each and every day. And and hopefully it pays off when the tournament gun goes off. As a kid who grew up in Coral Springs, was the University of Florida where you always dreamed of playing your college golf? You know, I didn't really dream of playing, uh, you know, at a specific school. Uh, for some reason or another, I always thought that the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill would have been a good place to go to school. And but being from the being from the state of Florida, um, you know, there was only a, there was three schools that looked at me when I was in high school: uh, Florida, Florida State. And uh, Texas A and M. I went on a recruiting trip out there as well, and uh, the University of Florida just worked out great. Uh, Buddy Alexander was a great coach, uh, 1986 U.S. Amateur champion, and so I, I knew he had the chops to you know to get me and to help me understand my game and get me to a level that I wanted to be at. Now, Buddy wasn't necessarily the the swing guru and knew everything about the golf swing, but he knew how to think. He knew how to practice, and and he really knew the game of golf and he he translated that to his players very well and uh, had a great career as a coach and was a, a great coach for me like i mentioned uh, you've written a wonderful book about the 1996 u.s amateur championship you and tiger in the finals tiger was the two-time defending champion at that point you were a sophomore at florida whose girlfriend was caddying for him you take a five-up lead through the first 18 holes you guys break for lunch and i read that during that Time during that break while you guys are having lunch and then uh, waiting for the TV coverage to start up again. Tiger's over on the range with Butch Harmon. You mm -hmm. and your girlfriend go shopping. Is that accurate? <laughs> Very accurate. It was. It was a 90 minute intermission, which might be the longest in U.S. amateur history. I mean, we were out on the West Coast in Portland. And so it was kind of like a, a, a prime time. It was a prime time finish, really, out there. And 
And so, yeah, I was five up. And so I think NBC said, I don't know this exactly for a fact, but I'm pretty sure that NBC said, look, you know, this match could be over a lot sooner. You know, let's let's, you know, make sure that we don't start too early and then we're not on uh, on live very much. So I think that's really what prompted it. And and uh, lo and behold, Tiger uh, pulled out a lot of rabbits uh, out of his hat in that second 18. And, uh, you know, history. Uh, repeated itself for a third time that day at Pumpkin Ridge. So to your point, he cuts into your lead. He's two down now after the front nine. You hole out a flop shot on 10. Talk about coming up clutch with the flop shot going in. Yeah, you know, I think that, um, you know, having the, you know, having the five up lead and then only being one up through 27 holes, it was kind of a blow to my system. And we were walking to the, the team, my girlfriend was caddy for me, now my wife for almost 25 years. And and she uh, she reminded me, she said, look, you're still leading. You were still winning. And even though it didn't feel like I was, and and so uh, it kind of gave me a little bit of a spark. And I did miss the green, but somehow, some way, you know, Tiger was about 30 feet and he was putting for birdie. And somehow, some way, I, I drew a reasonable lie in the rough, and but I had no room to work with. The greens were, the greens were just pool table hard. And and so, um, you know, it was just, uh, it was a very difficult shot and it was a risky shot that I decided to take. And, uh, it was just, you had to really, it was the only shot I had. And luckily the flag stick and the hole got in the way and, and I got back to two up. So you stay two up when you get to 16. Now you got a 10 footer for par. He's inside you with a six foot birdie putt of his own on the same line. Tell the story from there. Oh boy. Well. Really, the this is the epic moment of the match. You, you mentioned the book uh, titled "Hey Tiger, You Need to Move Your Mark Back," and this is really what that moment was about. Uh, I, I'm two up with three to play, and uh, we both hit our approach shots up there, and I'm I hit a greenside bunker shot, and uh, and he had a six footer for birdie, and and lo and behold, his ball marker was smacking my line, and I, I had to make this putt to force him to make his birdie putt to win the hole outright, and. Uh, and his ball marker was in my way. So just like any day you're playing golf, you say, hey, just slide that over one putter head. And so he did. And and I, I got up there, and I was very nervous. I mean, it was a nervous putt, and I had to get up there, and I, I poured it right in the middle. It was an outside left putt, and I, I got up there and hit the greatest putt I could and under severe pressure. And, you know, 15,000 people were watching us live, and not to mention the millions on NBC. And so uh, I'm walking off to the side of the green, and I just noticed that he hasn't taken much time to put his ball down. And, and I knew that he, he didn't move it, move it back. And so I just turned my head a very, uh, you know, nonchalant, reflective sort of way, a re- reflexive sort of way. And I just said, Hey, you, you got to move that back. And, and so he did. He stepped up there and he made that putt. And then he hold a, a 35 footer on the next hole to, to tie the match for the first time since 7:15 that morning when we started. So that begs the question, are you proud of yourself for telling him, which you didn't have to do? Thousand if you re- percent. Yeah, if you remain quiet, you win the match right there because he lose, he would have lost the hole. You win three and two and the trophy and the whole nine yards. But, you know, from a right thing to do, I imagine that weighed on your mind. It's the right thing to do. Yeah, well, look, when when golf, golf is a, such a, it's such a great game and, and you brought so many great guests onto your podcast and congratulations on all your great success with the podcast. And 
But, you know, golf is that game that, uh, for me, I mean, I my parents were divorced when I was 13 years old, and I moved from my native South Florida near the Fort Lauderdale area to the northwest corner of Arkansas, of all places, for my eighth grade year. And so it was kind of a shock to my system. It was a, a turbulent time in my life. And and so, um, you know, but the game of golf was there for me, uh, you know, as a as a 13-year-old when I really needed it. I needed a, a friend. It was hard to make friends in a in a strange place and being kind of an outsider uh, for a short time. And the game was there for me. And so you know, in that moment on the 34th hole, I, I guess you could say that I was there for the game. Uh, I, I paid it back, and the, you know, a game that has paid me has paid me so many dividends, and it's paid so many of your listeners and yourself so many dividends. Uh, it it, um, it was just it it was it's not only the right thing to do; it was really the only thing to do in my in my book. Well, I think the golf gods rewarded you because from. 1997 to 1999, you're on top of the golf amateur world. You're the number one ranked amateur in the world. You help the U.S. dominate at the Walker Cup. You come here to Atlanta. You win the Dogwood Invitational. That seems like pretty nice payment for uh, from a karma perspective. Yeah, I had a I had a pretty nice amateur career for sure. Uh, those two Walker Cup appointments were, and it wasn't necessarily you don't get you don't play your way onto those teams at least not not back then. Every spot. You had to be selected and by a committee and, you know, by a group of people. And so, you know, it's, and it wasn't necessarily just your golfing prowess at the time. It was, you know, what kind of person are you? And, uh, you know, so those, those two selections to the U S Walker cup team are, are the greatest accomplishments of my life, uh, for sure. And even now today, I mean, back in September, uh, you know, we have a Walker cup society and we're part of the, the Walker Cup every single time it's played, we we get to put our coats on if they still fit and and go uh, and go and sit. You know, we, I was sitting on the first tee at the old course, staring right at the RNA clubhouse when all the the current Walker Cup players. We had the whole introduction ceremonies, and you know, sitting next to great U.S. Amateur champions like you know John Harris or Fred Ridley, the chairman of Augusta National. I mean, to be able to be around people like that uh, in that fraternity uh, that is the Walker Cup. I mean, it, it, it will be the, the greatest thing that, I, that happened to me back then, and it's the greatest thing that continues. It's the, the gift that keeps on giving. So tell us about the 97 Walker Cup, because like I mentioned, you guys dominated the Britain and Ireland team, and that was no slouch, by the way. Justin Rose was a member of their team, as was Craig Watson, who won the British Amateur Championship that year and you guys had a tremendous team as well full of guys who had won big amateur events like jason gore was on that team brad Mm -hmm. elder on that team talk about playing with those guys and getting a huge win here on home soil that was that was awesome i mean it was uh, 18 to 6 lopsided victory we were we won the first morning session for nothing so we we got off to a really quick start and they were behind the eight ball right from the get-go and uh, i i played that british amateur champ craig watson uh, on that uh, Saturday singles match, you play Saturday and Sunday. There's two sessions, morning and an afternoon, and and uh, four ball and uh, or excuse me, foursomes and singles. And uh, yeah, I went two and one uh, in those matches. Uh, didn't do so good in the '99 version of it, but uh, th- that time at Quaker Ridge w- was super special and uh, definitely you know nice to keep in touch with some of those guys, like like a Jason Gore who was 
made his way in the world of golf in so many ways nowadays. Let's talk about some of your professional victories. 2001, you go up to Vancouver, you win the Vancouver Open, get your first professional win there. What do you remember about that week? It was a six-man, six-hole playoff. Uh, that's what I remember. And somehow, some way, I emerged victorious. I hold a 40-footer on one of the one of the playoff holes just to, uh, for birdie to stay in the match. Uh, yeah, it was just kind of a survival. And uh, yeah, that was my first really big victory there. And uh, and, and then we had a, another event the, the following spring in uh, the state of Texas, uh, even though it was the Canadian Tour. Uh, the, Canada gets pretty cold up there most of the year, so a very short playing window. And so we had to we had the chance to uh, play some extra events. And yeah, I won an event uh, in in uh, Houston, Texas. I beat uh, former U.S. Amateur champ Jeff Quinney and Hank Keeney, uh, both by a shot. So uh, that was a, it was live on Golf Channel. I got interviewed by Jerry Fultz right there in the 18th green, and uh, that, that was a pretty special moment too. Speaking of Golf Channel, tell us how, how you make the transition. You you go from playing a successful amateur career, you've got some success out on on the professional side on the Canadian Tour. And now you make the transition to being a fantastic broadcaster and analyst, whether it's on, on the Golf Channel and NBC and Fox. You've, you've done fantastic. Talk about how you made that transition. Uh, yeah, I always always loved that part of it. Uh, when I'd ever, if I'd miss a cut in the past, uh, early in my professional career, which was uh, kind of often, I guess, uh, uh, I, I worked some weekends uh, for whether it was Golf Channel, doing some on-course commentating or or what have you, and just kind of stayed in touch with, that part of it. And, um, uh, in 2016, I, I got to be involved with the, uh, with Fox sports and their USGA package. And I, uh, I was a part of, uh, shoot, I broadcasted the, uh, U S open, the women's open, the Curtis cup, uh, uh, the U S junior amateur. I was in the, uh, walking the final match, uh, at, uh, Flint Hills national back when Matthew Wolf, uh, and, uh, a guy named Noah Goodwin made it to the finals there, and that was pretty cool. And uh, Wolf lost it on the last hole, but uh, yeah, I had some really neat experiences in the game of golf. And nowadays, uh, in my broadcasting world, I I work for ESPN and PGA Tour Live, and I've worked some PGA Championships. Last year, I was at Oak Hill. Here's a great story. I was at Oak Hill last year, and uh, was on course commentating. And my the final day on Sunday, I got to walk step-by-step step with Rory McIlroy and Michael Block. And wow. it was right there when Block made the hole-in-one on the 15th hole, and the place went nuts. I got sprayed with beer. It was it was spectacular. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it was a, that was a moment that was so surreal. Uh, I mean, it makes your hair stand on end. And, and for me, I was lucky enough to be there and to call it and uh, for, for ESPN on their feature group coverage. And, it, it, and being a PGA professional, that was a, an extra, extra special moment. And then, uh, you know, even this week, I'm uh, starting uh, my 2024 campaign with PGA Tour Live on the featured group coverage. I'll be uh, on coverage for the Amex in Palm Springs and working with Lisa Cornwell and Andres Gonzalez. And so, uh, yeah, super fun. So all your listeners out there, uh, take a peek out there. Uh, if you've got ESPN Plus and PGA Tour Live, and I'll be uh, on quite a bit uh, for the next uh, few months at least. And we're even doing a cool new show on Wednesdays, it's an on the range show where we're going to break down swings and uh, do stuff like that with the PGA Tour players, and maybe have some earbuds, earbuds in the uh, the players' ear while they're playing and where they're hitting on the range, and uh, get to 
ask the players direct questions, and it'll be pretty special. Yeah, that's very cool. I saw a couple of pictures of you with Brian Katrick as you guys were broadcasting together. I co-host <laughs> yeah. a local golf show here in Atlanta on Sunday mornings with BK. Talk about working with him. Oh, BK is great. He is he is so funny. I mean, you hear him on Sirius XM with John McGinnis, and he, he is just a trip. I mean, he's so great to be around. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a great friend, though, too. I mean, we'll go out and we'll. We'll have dinners, and you know he's just a—he's a really good, positive guy to be around. I, I love BK. Steve, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they get a copy of your book. Plus, follow you online and on social media. Well, sure, uh, they can go on uh, movethatback.com and order a book up. And I'm happy to. Uh, and if you order it from that site as opposed to Amazon, I will directly sign it. I'll personally sign it to you or whoever you'd like me to, to send it to, and I will do that. So movethatback.com, and you can check me out on social media at scottpga. Uh, that's on the X and Instagram and I think even TikTok. And I don't know, I'm getting into a couple of those things, YouTube, uh, all those things. And I'm actually doing another very cool show that uh, your listeners need to check out. Uh, if they're in any of the sports betting world at all, uh, it's a new show on YouTube called Driving the Line. And uh, it's it's very cool. It's with the Jonathan Coachman, the coach from the WWE wrestling, uh, and he's done World Long Drive, and he was an ESPN host. And uh, anyway, we've got a lot of whole cast of characters on that as well. If you want to get a little sharper on your uh, sports betting knowledge and in the, in the game of golf, and it's Tuesdays at three o'clock, but it lives all the time on our uh, on our YouTube page there at uh, Driving the Line. So subscribe to that too. There you go. Steve, it has been a huge pleasure having you as part of the show this week. I hope I get the privilege of having you back and, and talking to you a little bit more. I feel like we just barely scratched the surface of the great things that you've done. Anytime. Call me anytime, Chris. Thanks so much. You bet. That is the great Steve Scott, folks. And again, go out there and check out his book, MoveThatBack.com. And I tell you what, I'll be going back out there because why wouldn't you? If you're going to get a copy of that book and it's a tremendous story, why wouldn't you get Steve to sign the book for you? So I'll be looking forward to that. Um, check him out on YouTube again, Driving the Line. He and Jonathan Coachman, Tuesdays, 3 o'clock, always out there on their YouTube channel. At S. Scott PGA is where you can find him on, uh, you can call it X, call it Twitter, whatever we're calling that thing now. But he's out there as well. Fantastic guy, great career, did so much as an amateur and as a pro and now as a broadcast analyst. Looking forward to having Steve back as on the uh, show here very, very soon. Coming up next is a guy who is universally known as one of the great people in our game, a guy who is a heck of a director of golf at one of the most historic country clubs in our country. He's the son of a Philadelphia legend and a mother who must be a saint, and you'll hear why, and that is Brendan Walsh. Before I get to Brendan, let's talk about our friends over at Squares Golf. And folks, do you sway and you're off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried Squares? Try the new Speed Bolt at squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z dot com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special 
at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special and book your tee time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. Okay, now next on the tee with me and making his debut on the show is Brendan Walsh. Brendan is the director of golf at the Country Club in Brookline, Massachusetts. Prior to that, he was the head golf professional at the Patterson Club in Fairfield, Connecticut. Brendan grew up in Philadelphia, the 12th of 15 children to Barbara and William Walsh. His father is a Philadelphia golf legend known to many as Sarge. He is not only revered in the Philadelphia community, but also over at Villanova for what he's done for that university. Brendan played his college golf at the College of Worcester, where he helped the Fighting Scots to a pair of top 10 finishes in the Division Three Championship in 1983 and 85 and a first-place finish in the 1985 North Coast Athletic Conference Championship. Brendan has done a tremendous job at the country club, and he's been such a credit to our game. He's helped host several great events there at the country club, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes, and I couldn't be more honored. I get to have him with me this week on Next on the Tee. Hey, Brendan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real honor. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Brendan, I want to start our time tonight by going back to the beginning with you, because as I mentioned in your intro, you grew up the 12th of 15 children. What was that like? It was incredible. When you were a child, you didn't think much different, uh, just the way it was. Look back on it, and my parents were incredible role models. And being the 12th of 15, I was one of the younger kids and didn't get a chance to sit at the big table for quite some time. You had to work your way up. And, uh, the I have eight sisters and six brothers and just wonderful support system. And I'm happy to report that 14 of the 15 are still with us today. My mother's still with us at 96. I just had lunch with her. I was in Philadelphia over the weekend and had a chance to get to spend some time with her. And she's hanging tough. It's incredible. Uh, I think what she's been through and still kicking. Yeah. God bless her. And that's, I wanted to ask you about your mom because she had to spend the majority of her adult life pregnant trying to take care of 15 kids. She has to be an incredibly special woman. She is. She is. Patience is incredible. Uh, they were a great team, my mother and father. And My father was tough-nosed. He had to be uh, you know, raising 15 children. And you uh, always feared him uh, when you were younger, when things went wrong. My mother was always that nurturer that you had in your life and still that way, most patient person I've ever met and uh, just incredible. And the VIP suite is waiting for her in heaven. I can promise you that. When you were playing junior golf, how many of the competitors that you had to go out there and face were actually family members? Uh, you know, with the brothers, uh, the first six of the seven children were girls. Then all the boys started coming. My brother, Chad, who's the best player in the family. He is two years younger. And then my brother, Dan, would be next in line above us. And he's three years older. And, uh, they're great players. So we did have a lot of events where we were all in the same of flights or what have you and a lot of the Philadelphia junior golf stuff but it was all kinds of fun and Chet and I played on the same high school team which was a lot of fun and he went on to have uh, still is a great player a great amateur career and played in some national amateurs and some mid-ams and uh, he's a former crump cup champion at Pine Valley great player but we had a lot of fun uh, competing against one another but also uh, being on the same high school team 
Your father was a giant in the Philadelphia golf community. I read he started playing golf at the age of 10, caddied at McCutcheon Golf and Country Club. He won a couple of championships before he moved to Philly. Talk about his start in the game. Yeah, my dad I grew up in New Jersey in the McCutcheon area, Plainfield area, and went to St. Peter's Prep in Newark and went off to Villanova. My father thought he was going to be a priest, uh, and when he got to college, he realized that uh, he was attracted to women, and his roommate in college used to be uh, dated my mom after school and said uh, my mother mentioned she wanted to have a lot of kids, and my father, um, this guy Sam Canning was his name, and said, hey, uh, I'm not the guy for you, but I have the guy for you, and they went ahead and got married and started to have lots of kids, and he loved the game of golf. And Member at a long time member of Philadelphia Country Club, Pine Valley, and and in Florida, I played at Jupiter Hills. He won 37 club championships in his lifetime. Shot his age over 300 times and played 600 different golf courses. He was the Golf Association of Philadelphia president from 1992 to 1994. He really loved the J. Wood Platt Caddy Scholarship, and that was the big thing that he did later in life and raised over a million dollars for that and. Just loved the game of golf. It was his one luxury that he had in life and couldn't get enough of it. And when he was in Florida, he'd spend his winters in Florida and he'd play every day and just loved, loved, loved the game of golf. And he shared it with us and all the boys played. We had a couple of our sisters play. They were big swimmers. It's a big treat for us. So we'd do all of our yard work and he would take us over to play golf at the Philadelphia Country Club. And once we got all our yard work done and he had to, he got three swings. And if you whiff three times in a row, you, had to pick up and go to the next hole, so a touch it really quickly and how to make contact and supported us throughout playing a lot of junior golf. But it was uh, his, besides his, my mother and his family, it was uh, his next love for sure. I also read that he won the Golf Association of Philadelphia Father and Son Championship with four different sons. Were you one of them? Yeah, I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, go ahead and win that. And he also won the the Gap Senior Championship at 69, which was quite an accomplishment. And I had a chance to uh, go and play in the National Senior, USJ National Senior Championship. Uh, the oldest winner, I think, ever in the Philadelphia Golf Association to win that championship. We uh, all took turns playing in the Gap father-son with him. It was a treat. Uh, Pine Valley had a father-son as well that we had an opportunity to play in from time to time. He established the Walsh Endowment to help support Villanova golf, and he served as president of the Villanova Alumni Association for a few years. He won the Villanova Loyalty Award in 1968. Talk about how dedicated he was to Villanova. I love Villanova, and and that was a really special thing when he passed and established that uh, foundation for them to help the program. And My brother, Chet, as I mentioned, he was actually Villanova's first scholarship golfer. And that was a real uh, neat thing for my dad, who was uh, played golf at Villanova, and my brother Michael played at Villanova, and then for Chet to go ahead, and they offered scholarships. We were trying to recruit him at the College of Worcester, and he uh, took advantage of Villanova, and then Chet actually became the golf coach at Villanova after that. So we were raised on Villanova basketball and football, went to all the games. He just loved Villanova, and that was a, a true love for him uh, as well, and he's very loyal to them. and. Uh, the opportunity for him to win the loyalty award there was a real treat for him as well. Speaking of the College of Worcester, which is located over in Worcester, Ohio, just a little bit southwest of Akron, what made you decide to go play your college golf there? 
We had a wonderful golf professional, the Philadelphia Country Club, a fellow by the name of Tom Wilcox, who attended the College of Worcester. And I was uh, a basketball player, a decent basketball player in high school, and wanted to go to college for basketball. And Tom says, gosh, you could go to Worcester and play basketball and golf. And went out to visit the school, and the coach, a fellow by the name of Bob Nye, who's a PGA professional, and had an opportunity when we first got to school to take a an advanced golf class with Coach Nye. Anybody is interested in playing golf and I was a decent golfer at the time. I was probably a seven handicap and by taking golf lessons every day in this class that we had, I broke seventy for the first time in that short period of time. And so I didn't touch a basketball till about November first when practice started and everybody else was playing and I was pretty far behind and decided to pass on basketball and stay with golf and Scott Nye, who was the longtime director of golf at Marion Golf Club, was our teammate. His father was our coach. We had a great team, and we had a wonderful freshman class, and the majority of the, the guys stayed uh, through their senior year, and we were very competitive through the years. We hosted Division Three National Championship at Worcester Country Club in 1983, and we had a good run there, and then our senior year was in Rochester, New York. It was at Monroe Country Club. Jim Merva, the longtime uh, professional uh, was there at the time and it was a wonderful uh, good balance between academics and athletics and having a, a really talented a team and a, a great program we we're very competitive and coach and I did a terrific job you know to have a PGA professional as your golf coach and he was uh, terrific and he was that second father that I had in life and away from home and he kept us all moving in the right direction. A lot of his players went on to be PGA professionals, which is pretty neat for a small little school like that of 1,800 students. Yeah, so let's take that a half step further because, as you mentioned, Scott being a teammate of yours, and both of you have gone on to be at two of the top country clubs in our country. You at the country club in Brookline, Scott the head pro over at Marion. That speaks volumes for who you two are plus what Bob and your father were able to instill in you. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, actually, I was in, as I said, was in Philadelphia, and I had breakfast with Scott on Saturday morning, and we were just reminiscing and how blessed we are. And you know, Scott and I, were, we worked at great clubs as assistants, and we both went to clubs. Uh, he went to the Country Club of York, and then I went to the Patterson Club. So we both were able to uh, have opportunities at clubs to really uh, gain some confidence and then, you know, I went to the country club first a year or two, I think, ahead of when he started at Marion. But we've just been fortunate to, uh, we've worked hard. We, we've got some great breaks. As you know, anytime you get good opportunities, breaks have to happen. And, and we've worked hard and we've worked at great clubs with wonderful memberships that are truly supportive and give you the resources to do things right. And, uh, we've, you know, we just, as you said, we were reminiscing at, at breakfast the other morning just how fortunate we are to, to be at such wonderful places. We're both on the back nines of our careers and look back and uh, to have two special people like our fathers. And our fathers had a chance to meet a few times. His father came to my father's funeral and I was able to go back out to Worcester. Just important people in both of our lives. And my dad and Scott had a good relationship. It's, uh, it's you know, Marion is, uh, it was real close. It was the next town over from where we grew up in Haverford. So uh, they got a chance to see each other a lot. And Scott always looked after my dad when he was starting to age a little bit and wasn't able to drive. And Scott looked after him a few times, getting him home from some golf association, Philadelphia events, and things of that nature. So uh, utmost respect and admiration for Scott and his dad. And obviously for my father, who's been the greatest role model in my life for sure. You mentioned the Patterson Club and from the early the mid-90s, you're the head golf professional there over in Fairfield, Connecticut. It's a 
Robert Trent Jones design, one of the top 100 courses in our country. Talk about the time you got to be over there. You know, it was a terrific opportunity. I, I was an assistant professional, worked under a great golf professional by, by the name of Bill Adams at Ridgewood Country Club. And the Patterson Club job opened up and went through the process. It was actually started by the General Electric Company in the late 40s and was for their high-end executives. IBM used to have some courses around the country. And, and over time, they started to let some non-GE people in. And, and the club actually sold it to the members in the late 60s. And it was ironic that GE moved their headquarters to Fairfield, Connecticut. And they, uh, and, but we still had a bunch of GE people, but the fact that they were right there. But it was a terrific place. It was a great way, to, a great place to cut my teeth. The members were terrific there. They were so supportive. And when the opportunity came open at the country club and and called upon three or four people to write letters and call, and they were just so supportive of me. And, and it's really a, a real treat. I've actually played golf today with one of the former presidents at the Patterson Club uh, down here in, in Jupiter today at a place called Turtle Creek. And Dave Cole was his name, and had a really nice uh, chat about just reminiscing about my great years there and how supportive they were. I was a young man; they took a chance. I was 27, and they uh, just embraced, and we brought some good programs in with uh, support us with good people and. Had a terrific run there, and, and then that obviously opened up the door for uh, going to the country club in 1998. Speaking of the mid-90s, you won the Connecticut Open in 1996. What do you recall about winning that great event? You know, it was before my children were born, and uh, put a lot of time in. I said, what a treat to be able to host the state open at your home club, and you know, sometimes that can be tough with all the pressure that you have, but I worked in my game a lot, and you know I played a lot of competitive golf in college, and still love to play. New Jersey section had a great playing section, and then when I got to Connecticut, they were in the Met section. It was great playing, and I really wanted to do well. And uh, my wife was you know, working full time at that time, and so we were both busy. But I had a lot of time to put some golf uh, practice, and all the stars lined up for a couple of days, and uh, shot four under in the last round, or five under for the. 54 holes and it was uh, a highlight of my playing career for sure birdie the last hole and it was a real treat i played the last two rounds with the famous dick sideroff who was a legend as you know and he was uh still played in connecticut state golf association events and to have dick playing with me and cheering me on and uh it was incredible and we talk about it today i, I ran into him at the u.s open uh, 2022 and he's so supportive and uh, always talks about that Shot on the 18th hole that I hit and made the birdie putt. Uh, it was a wonderful thing for me. But since the kids have come, my game is uh, taking a little bit of a backseat. I'm starting to work a little bit harder right now. They're all launched out of the house. But I always say uh, once the kids came, the golf game uh, took a backseat for sure. And you mentioned going from there to the country club. And I got to ask you, what was it like for you the first time you turned off of Clyde Street and drove up the driveway to the clubhouse? Had to be a surreal moment. It was uh, very unique, the country club, when they uh, did the interview and we had a phone interview, but they actually invited my wife to come to the first interview, which typically you don't see. You see that in the second or third interview. And, and we drove in, and, was, and I had been there for the 1990, 1988 U.S. Open as a spectator. And, but, you know, with the grand or what have you, you don't get appreciation for the club. But you drive in this long driveway and you see this incredible complex and uh, first building that you see is this clubhouse it's about thirty-five thousand square feet painted in primrose yellow and then to the right you see the indoor tennis court which on the outside almost looks like an ice skating rink and then you come into a small quad and 
just had the goosebumps and knowing the, the history of the club and the whole Francis we met story. And it's just a, a unique and special place. And, and you think about in golf history in 1913, what we met did to go ahead and beat Ted Ray and Harry Varden and put the game of golf on the map in this country. And you think about the number of golfers, you know, in, in 1913, there were 350,000 golfers. And over the next 15 years, it went to 2.1 million and the number of golf courses, there were 700 in 1913. And over the next 15 years, went to 5,600 golf courses. And that was all of the, the impact of We Met Twin. And you could say it's maybe one of the most important things that happened in American golf. What happened there at 191 Clyde Street. It's pretty incredible to think that uh, I get a chance to pull in there every day. We Met's house still stands. A bunch of members bought his house recently and re uh, renovated back to the 1913 era and they rent it out for folks if they want to go ahead and stay there it's uh pretty special and i never take it for granted and i uh, realize how lucky i am to be there be at a, an institution the cathedral of golf uh, for sure during your tenure there you've hosted some of the biggest events in our game the 99 Ryder cup the 2013 u.s amateur the 2022 u.s open and I want to go back and talk about each of those because I'm guessing the crowds were very different for all of them. Let's start with the Ryder Cup in 99, one we actually won. Yes, uh, Ben Crenshaw, he's a childhood idol. So when I got the job to find out he was the captain, actually I knew he was the captain, but to be able to get a chance to meet him, I showed him a letter that I wrote him when I was a young man and uh, just congratulating when he won a tournament when he was right out of college. and. But uh, to have it, an opportunity to be part of that, a lot of the tournament was already put together by the time I arrived. Yeah. And to see the U.S. team come in for a practice round and, you know, a year out in September of 1998, they actually set the golf course up to be Crenshaw. He gave us all the uh, ideas on what he wanted. And it's uh, the Ryder Cup captain has a lot of say in how the golf course is set up. And so we set it up. Members played it during that setup for that whole month of September in 1998. And and then the players came in for a practice round about a month before. Uh, they had some of the possible alternates and what have you that came in. And there were a couple of the changes that we made. And uh, just to see them all taking so much pride in what was uh, as they're preparing for the event. And then as you lead up to the practice rounds and uh, to see the activity level and the energy level and to see the U.S. team have a tough first two days and Crenshaw with that. Famous quote, say, I have a good feeling about tomorrow, and I believe in fate. And go out. Tom Lehman played Lee Westwood in that first match, and he won the energy level. And David DeVal's putt on the 14th hole. And you see uh, Justin Leonard, well, he was down, and he came back, and the incredible putt that he made. People don't realize he made a bomb on 15 as well. And then, obviously, the putt that on 17, it was heard around the world. And all the controversy with Jose Maria, it was just uh, – wonderful to be part of and to, to have the U.S. team win and think about uh, the tough times that we've had in the Ryder Cup since then, but for them to be on top and, and the Crenshaw to the guy who's such a historian and loves the game and loves the country club and and to think that uh, I'll never forget this or that night in the restroom and at that time before we had done a renovation, we had these old uh, urinals in there and Ben said, can you believe these urinals? And obviously he was... Uh, Feeling pretty good after a few drinks or what have you, and just how old style it was, and how much he appreciated the club and what it was all about. 
uh, some great stories. Uh, one of the things I always like to tell about is this is right when soft spikes were uh, being transitioned over and uh, all the shoe manufacturers in 1999 were sending all their shoes were soft spikes. And we had outlawed metal spikes in 1998. And so everything was going through. So they, in those days they were wearing foot joy classics, the beautiful leather classic shoes, white with a brown saddle. You probably remember those. We all had them back in the day. And and they all came with soft spikes and the players were crazy. Uh, can't, I can't play in these things. I'm going to slip. So we had given away all of our metal spikes. We had to call Footjoy up and had to go pick up metal spikes and change out all their shoes to back to metal spikes. It was uh, just little things like that, little fires you're putting out. I remember making adjustments. Tom Lehman's wedge, his sand wedge, he wanted to loft and lie to be adjusted a little bit. And it was in the European team's locker room, which is our golf shop. I had to go in there make an adjustment. Tom walked in there. They're all giving him a look. And then the first hole, an alternate shot with Tiger. They hit it long and he holding it out. And that was kind of exciting. And just a lot of great things that happened that week. And you know, something you'll never forget so many years ago. The 2013 U.S. Amateur was won by Matthew Fitzpatrick. He did so four and three over Oliver Goss. He also had Bryson DeChambeau and Corey Connors in that field. What do you remember about that week? Oh, it's terrific. Uh, you know, it's a players come in and you're waiting to see who gets in and, and 312 of the best players of the world. And we had Gil Hansen made some changes prior to that. And we were kind of curious to see how our golf course would stack up. And there was always a talk about, we'd love to have a U.S. Open, but are we as difficult as we need to be for a U.S. Open? And uh, only six players broke par. Uh, the lowest score in qualifying of, on our golf course was 67, three under. We played a little bit differently uh, layout than we did for the Open in 2022. And, and then you see, as the field started to uh, get into match play, and the players that were supposed to be there lost in the first few rounds or didn't qualify in the match play. And you keep hearing about this kid, Matthew Fitzpatrick, and Oliver Goss. And yeah, Oliver played one of his fellow countrymen, Brady Watt, in the semis. And they had an incredible match. And it's unfortunate they had to play one another. And then Matt uh, played Corey Connors. Um, they went ahead and uh, Matt plays Oliver Goss. And, you know, if you were to say you're going to go ahead and be a betting person and, and you want to you look at Oliver Goss at 6'2", 185, carried 300 in the air, and you see Matt is 18, he looks like he's 12, and it's at maybe 280, and uh, but he's got an amazing short game. The rough is really long, and some of the up and downs he's made, you would have taken Goss all day long. But the one thing he couldn't measure was the heart that Matt Fitzpatrick had. and You've heard his caddy, uh, Billy Foster, talk about the heart and the grit that he has. And, boy, you saw that when he was 18. And he, just, he had a wonderful week. And to see uh, him come out on top, and he's an incredible human being. If you haven't gotten to know him, and, and just a, a good, solid citizen. His family's terrific. And the story about his brother caddying for him and the whole Francis who met Eddie Lowry story. And, uh, his brother Alex, who's now uh, playing himself professionally. And, it's just a really neat story, and um, you know, for him to come out on top, and then he goes to Northwestern for six months or so, and doesn't quite work out. And you think, okay, because this guy had it to make it on tour, and you know, again, uh, the thing you you could never measure was his heart, and uh, to see what he's been able to accomplish on tour now, and be a major champion, and come back in 2022, and first person since Jack Nicklaus to win the U.S. Open, U.S. Amateur in the same venue on the men's side. And Julie Inkster was one of your guests recently. I know that uh, she wanted on the, the women's side of Prairie Dunes. It's pretty cool. Jack wanted, did it at Pebble Beach. 
Talk about him coming back and repeating his success there. I mean, we all remember what clutch putting he came up with during that final round. The unbelievable shot from the bunker on 18. It was a great duel between him and Will Zalatoris on Sunday, both trying to win their first major. Scotty Scheffler in the mix right there as well. Talk about what goes into hosting a U.S. Open. Then after all the work is done, getting to watch drama like that unfold. Yeah, there's so much that goes into a U.S. Open. You think about uh, here, 2013 U.S. Amateur, the golf course holds up really well. I remember Mike Davis and having lunch with him, with our general manager, David Shag and our president at the time. And Mike Davis walked the golf course that morning on Saturday of the semifinals and said, gosh, you know what? We'd love to try to have a U.S. Open here at the golf course. It's held up really well this week, and we'd love to go ahead and do it. So for 2013, we started talking about it. You go through everything, and then Royal Gil Hansen and just talked about, okay, what do we want to do golf course-wise? Uh, 2022, they decided to bring back the little par three, our member 12th hole. We used it as the 11th hole. It's the first time it was played in a major championship since 1913. We met uh, when he won. They played the the 12th hole and so uh, the routing changed a little bit it, it started to be a little bit more balanced uh, when you had the amateur the front nine was somewhere in the range of 3200 and the back nine was 4100 and so by changing the routing a little bit we had a par five on, on the front par five on the back and it was 35 and 37 we played a little bit shorter by bringing that the 125 yard par three into the and just to build up, we had an incredible chairman by the name of Will Fulton and his co-chair, Stephen Pellegrino, and all the vice chairs. There's just so much that goes into it, and our longtime GM, David Shag, and then uh, his uh, assistant general manager, Kristen O'Connor, is now our general manager, and the team of people, uh, Jackie Singleton, who is uh, our executive director from the club side and working with the USGA. We had a terrific relationship, and the respect that the two organizations have for one another, and it's just critical for everybody to be working in the same direction. And, and then you come to the event and, and the golf course is perfect. The weather leading up to it worked out beautifully for us. It wasn't a lot of rain. It was firm and fast. And then uh, you go ahead and, and the golf course holds up. We dodge it. A dramatic thunderstorm on Friday afternoon. It looked like it was going to hit and uh, it never did. And so the golf course stayed there. We had a little rain on Saturday. Uh, Saturday night, but Saturday the wind blew and it was cold and blustery. And I don't, I think there were uh, 19 players that were under par after the first day, and I think 29 that were under par after the second day. And then that weather comes in on Saturday, and I think there were only six players under par uh, after Saturday's round. And to go into Sunday, we had some rain Saturday night, it was a little softer. I think we had a total of nine players under par for the event. So, you know, as we like to say, the old lady held up well. Uh, there's an article that's written for the 88 Open called Old Lady Clyde Street. So just to see how the golf course held up and golf course superintendent Dave Johnson, director of grounds, his team did a marvelous job and just uh, he just knocked it out of the park in all areas to see how they responded on Saturday, uh, Sunday morning and getting a place firm. And then, you know, I look back and you look at the winners and you look at some of the players that were in there and they were, Matt Fitzpatrick has played the club. You think about the rounds in the amateur and then he comes back and he's he's befriended. He stayed with one of the members, Will Fulton, and they were friends. So he came back three or four times and played since 2013 leading up and just for friendly golf. And, and then you look at Will's out, of course, he played in the amateur. Scotty Scheffler, who was in the hunt there, 
he played in the amateur and it seems, you know, there's a lot of blind shots at our golf course and the people that had the most rounds under their belt leading up to the event played the best and they were in the hunt and to, to see the top three were all participants in the U.S. amateur. It just shows you just the, the more comfortable they got with their tee shots, with the, the blind tee shots, the blind second shot of the par five, the 14th hole, you know, things of that nature go a long way where you have comfort and uh, to see it come down to the wire, it's Patrick to hit that shot, and then Zal Torres and Scotty both had chances on that last hole to have a U.S. Open come down to that. And, and obviously, uh, we're all rooting for Fitzpatrick and just the relationship he had with the club and to see where his game had come. And just he had it going on Sunday, too. And to see that drive he hit on the fifth hole, which is the drive of par four. He got a great bounce there. And he hit 17 greens and had 34 putts. And, you wouldn't think that somebody's going to have 34 putts is going to win a U.S. Open on Sunday, but because um, you know he hit 17 out of 18 greens, it's pretty incredible for him to uh, he had uh, the par five or he, uh, two putt birdie on the fifth hole and then a two putt birdie on the eighth hole, and then that incredible putt he made on 13, and then he made another birdie on 15, and Sal Torres comes back and makes that birdie on 16. And, and then having a chance on the uh, 18th hole with uh, that shot he hit, that nine iron out of that bunker, and the ball went in. There's a tongue there, and it actually, as it rolled down to the left, it actually got away from the tongue enough that he was able to hit a shot where if that ball just rolled straight back down and not to the left, he would have had to punch out and then to try to wedge it up onto the green. But he got very fortunate with the way once it went up the tongue and slid down to the left, it it reached a bottom point where he'd had enough, but 155 yard nine iron, pretty incredible. Yeah, it was for the shot that he hit. Brendan, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with you and all the great things you're doing, whether it's following you online or it's on social media. Uh, thanks, Chris. I'm pretty old school. Uh, I'm not really online. I need to start doing that. I've just got involved with the New England PGA as their secretary. So, if you have me on again, I'll have something up by then. But uh, I apologize for not uh, being as far along with all that social media stuff as I should be. But, <laughs> no worries. Uh, yeah, I'm old school, uh, big time in a lot of ways. So I uh, appreciate it. I uh, congratulate you on the wonderful job you do. And I've had a chance to listen to a lot of your podcasts. There's nobody who does more research than you. And it's, uh, it's a real treat. It's an honor to be on. And thank you so much for all that you do for, the game of golf and for the opportunity to give so many to share their stories. So congrats and keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you very much. I appreciate that very much. I've got a million questions about you and your career and the stories that uh, you have. I hope I get the privilege of having you back on again uh, sometime soon. Thank you so much, Chris. Have a great night. Enjoy. You too. Thanks, Brendan. Folks, that is the great Brendan Walsh. He's out there doing great things at the country club. Up there in Brookline, Massachusetts, he's had a fantastic junior career, college career, and now what he's doing uh, in our game as one of the absolute very best professionals that our game has to offer. Uh, great family. You heard that. What a, a tremendous mother he had to, to be uh, in charge of the kids, 15 kids, spending her life pregnant and uh, taking care of the children. And then uh, his father being a Philadelphia legend, and he has certainly done both of his parents very proud for the great things that he has achieved and means to to our game nowadays. Um, like I said, I think we're just scratching the surface of the great things that he's achieved so far. 
and what he'll continue to do. So I look forward to having him back on the show again very soon. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Team. My sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Megan Francella, Steve Scott, and Brendan Walsh for being a part of the show this week. Next week, I'm going to be down at the PGA Merchandise Show in Orlando. So I have some interviews for you from the show floor. Excited to see the new equipment and apparel for 2024. And a lot of the top instructors in our game and friends of this show are going to be there. As you heard at the top of the show, Tom Patrick and I will get together. Rob Strana will be there. Brian Jacobs will be there. Eddie Dry from Strixon Cleveland Golf. He and I will catch up, as will Jack Curry from Two Under. And I will spend some time together. Martin Chuck, I'll be spending some time with him as well. And Jill Spiegel, president of the PGA Tour Superstore, will spend a little bit of time together. Hope to run into Susie Whaley again like we did last year. So as I run into people, we'll talk a little bit, chat about what's going on with the show, and I'll have that for you next week as well. Folks, as you know, you can find this show available as a podcast, just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on TribLive.com and the Pittsburgh Tribune Review site. Just go to TribLive.com, click on Sports, and then Podcasts. You're going to find the show available front and center for you there. You can also find it on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audioboom, Player.fm. And as always, my thanks to the folks over at Good Pods for making this show one of their recommended podcasts and a staff pick. Please download their free app and stream your favorite podcast right there on your favorite device. But as always, most of all, I thank all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.